Podcast, the podcast that takes a look at the things that happen just beyond the pages of your history book, at the people, places, and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing, but play a much larger role in the story. I'm Josh Burns, and welcome to episode 13, Cabeza de Vaca, and I Would Walk 500 More. In our last episode, we saw how the Narvaez expedition to the New World became an epic fail almost from the very beginning. Hurricanes, bad navigation, hostile indigenous peoples, and the Spanish's seeming penchant for trying to murderize everyone who answered the whole where to gold at question wrong all helped to doom the whole thing. There were a couple of bright spots that, in hindsight, were pretty impressive, such as the men successfully crafting rafts that survived from Florida all the way to Texas. But all in all, things seemed to continually go from bad to worse with this group. We'll pick up where we left off last episode, as the rafts set ground on the shores of these uncharted desert isles. In case you missed it in the last episode, our story will center around the exploits of four individuals, Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, Captain Andres Dorantes, Captain Alonso de Castillo, and Estebanico. In the end, we will see that these four men may have lost their friends in their way, but they gained, well, you will see whether they gained anything in the end. Cabeza de Vaca lay on the beach recovering his strength. His raft had been thrown up on the beach of this new island off the coast of present-day Texas. The other 40-ish survivors from his raft were scattered all along the beach, trying to recover as well. The men were so weak that maybe only a handful of them were able to even stand. Slowly, those who could were able to build fires and roast the last few bites of corn. As they slowly recovered, Cabeza de Vaca sent one of the men, named Lope de Oviedo, to explore their surroundings, but to stay close. Lope found a small trail and followed it to a small, seemingly abandoned Indian village. Lope looked around a little bit, grabbed a pot and filled it with fish, and headed back to the group of castaways. He soon realized that he was being followed by first a small dog and then by three natives armed with bows. Lope returned to the group before the natives got to him, and they stopped a short distance from the Spanish. Cabeza de Vaca recalls, quote, Half an hour later, two hundred bowmen, with joints of cane stuck through the holes in their ears, reinforced the three individuals. Whatever their stature, they looked like giants to us in our fright. We could not hope to defend ourselves. Not half a dozen of us could even stand up. Uh-oh. This looked bad. If you recall in the previous interactions with the natives of this strange land, relationships with them could be very tricky and outright dangerous. But the natives didn't attack. Cabeza de Vaca and the royal inspector Alonso de Solis carefully walked toward the group and called out to them. Some of the natives came forward, and the two Spaniards did the European thing and handed out beads and some small bells that they somehow inexplicably still had with them. Seriously, how do they always have bells and beads with them no matter what happens? It's crazy. Anyway, the two Spaniards walked up and signed that they wanted to be friends with the natives to which the natives seemed to agree, since they had handed over some of their arrows as a sign of friendship. Then the natives left the beach, telling them that they would be back the next day and they would be bringing food. For the next few days, these friendly natives visited the Spanish camp, bringing fish and roots to help them recover. Soon the Spanish were strong enough to drag their raft out of the sand and get it back on the water, hoping to resume their journey south to Panuco. The bright hope of the last few days was not to last, unfortunately. Cabeza de Vaca describes the scene. Quote, it was a struggle to dig our barge out of the sand it had sunk in, and another struggle to launch her. For the work in the water while launching, we stripped and stowed our clothes in the craft. 
Quickly clambering in and grabbing our oars, we had rowed two crossbow shots from the shore when a wave inundated us. Being naked and the cold intense, we let our oars go. The big wave capsized the barge. The inspector and two others held fast, but that only carried them more certainly underneath, where they drowned. A single roll of the sea tossed the rest of the men into the rushing surf and back onto shore half-drowned. We lost only those the barge took down, but the survivors escaped as they were born, with the loss of everything we had. That was not much, but valuable to us in that bitter November cold, our bodies so emaciated we could easily count every bone and look to the very picture of death. End quote. Naked, cold, and wet, the remaining men staggered back onto the beach they had just left, and were fortunate enough to find the embers of their campfire still hot enough to rekindle a fire. All they could do now, it seemed, was pray to God for mercy and to try to keep warm. As Professor Resendez notes in his book, A Land So Strange, quote, the castaways now face the new world quite literally naked, end quote. At sunset, the Indians returned and were shocked to see the sorry state the Spanish were in. In an example of the human understanding and sympathy, Cabeza de Vaca tells us, quote, The Indians, understanding our full plight, sat down and lamented for half an hour so loudly they could have been heard a long way off. It was amazing to see these wild, untaught savages howling like brutes in compassion for us. It intensified my own grief at our calamity and had the same effect on the other victims, End quote. Soon after the lamenting, the natives brought the Spaniards back to their village, in some cases by literally carrying them. Once there, they placed the Spaniards in a special hut that had many fires built in it already to help warm the men. Now, not all the Spanish were happy with this plan, though, and made their fears known amongst the group. Some of the men even stayed out on the beach. And many of them had been in Mexico recently and had heard the tales of what had happened to Europeans who had been captured by native peoples specifically that they were usually sacrificed to some strange and monstrous god. Understandably, the Spanish were a little nervous that night, especially when the natives began a dance party in celebration. As Cabeza de Vaca says, quote, For us there was no joy, fasting or sleep, as we waited for the hour they should make us victims. End quote. All their fears were for naught, however, as the men not only survived the night, but also were fed well the following morning. Now I want to pause for a moment to make sure that we all see the extraordinary thing that just happened. If you recall in our last episode, we discussed how there was a growing pseudo-conversation happening in Spain about whether or not the natives that they were coming into contact with in the New World were, in fact, fully human. Though the two groups had shared no common language, customs, rituals, or beliefs, human empathy showed itself in these native peoples to the men washed up on the island. We've already seen how difficult life could be in the New World, how difficult it was to find food or, fi or to find shelter. Professor Resendez sums it up nicely, saying, quote, The Indians' generosity was astonishing. They had taken food to the Europeans twice a day for some time and had gone to great lengths to help transport them to their camp and give them shelter. Potentially, they would have to sustain this helpless crew through the winter. For a small community of not more than a few dozen families, feeding 40 additional adults would constitute a significant drain on their food supplies, end quote. In other words, this group of natives had to work twice as hard to care and provide for a group of would-be Spanish conquerors, and they did willingly with compassion and empathy. The day after the dance party, Cabeza de Vaca noticed something odd. 
There was a native walking around wearing European-made trinkets that Cabeza de Vaca and his crew had not handed out. Quickly, Cabeza de Vaca asked the man about what he was wearing. To his delight, the native man reported that there were some other guys just like him on the other side of the island. Now, I'm sure there was a small moment of, you couldn't have mentioned this before? But soon enough, Captain Durantes, Captain Castillo, and their crew came and joined them. These new Spaniards were appalled at the sorry state of Cabeza de Vaca's men, but were overjoyed to see them again since the last time they had been together was when they were all trying to cross the Mississippi River last episode. Of even better news, Durantes and Castillo still possessed their raft, and they quickly tried to repair it. At the very least, some of the, by now, strongest of the remaining 80 men would maybe possibly, hopefully, be able to make it back to Panuco into New Spain. The rest would have a chance to rest and recover before trying to march their way south later on. But any hopes of success were quickly blown up, obliterated, and then sunk to the bottom of the gulf. Cabeza de Vaca says, quote, We set directly to work, but before we could wrest the barge out of the water, Tavera, a gentleman of our company, died, and then the unseaworthy barge sank. With most of us naked and the weather discouraging, walking or swimming across rivers and coves, also with no food supply or in even anything to carry one in, we resigned ourselves to remaining where we were for the winter. End quote. Four of the strongest men were still sent south toward Panuco, but unfortunately they were never seen again. And again, the Spanish were forced to spend their winter in the company of these fortunately friendly natives. The two groups of Spaniards live with the natives on this island, Cabeza de Vaca and his crew with one group, Durantes and Castillo with the other. Things were not that great for the Europeans, however, because another cold winter was in store in 1528. The brutal conditions took their toll. The five Spanish that stayed on the beach resorted to cannibalism to try to stay alive. Cabeza de Vaca says, quote, The Indians were so shocked at this cannibalism that, if they had seen it sometime earlier, they surely would have killed every one of us. In a very short while as it was, only 15 of the 80 who had come survived. Then half the natives died from a disease of the bowels and blamed us. End quote. That disease of the bowels was most likely dysentery, and it killed half the natives on the island, and further served as a terrible harbinger of what was to come for the majority of the continent. Small wonder that Cabeza de Vaca and the rest of the survivors would name the island Malhado, or the Island of Doom. And so, for the next few years, the Spanish survivors lived with the natives. Cabeza de Vaca identified his group as the Capoques, and the group that held Durantes and Castillo were the Hands. As time dragged on, the Spanish were slowly forced into more and more subservient roles in their respective villages. Carrying wood, getting water, getting beaten with sticks were commonplace, but more brutal behavior soon followed. Three Spaniards were killed simply for going into a different house. Another was murdered because a Capoque woman had a dream about him. Professor Resendez shed some light on what was going on, saying, quote, For the coastal peoples of Texas, slaves were decidedly marginal to their survival and well-being. For one thing, a slave may have represented one more pair of arms, but also an additional mouth to feed. Rather than systematically procuring and exploiting slaves, they were tolerated like stray dogs and permitted to stay as long as they made themselves useful, end quote. The mighty conquistadors had been brought low and humbled. Their lives depended on the goodwill of their native masters. By the spring of 1529, there were only 18-ish castaways still alive on the island. Those 18 or so never lost sight of their ultimate goal of getting to Benuco. 
The hard part was finding ways for them all to go together. Durantes, Castillo, and Estebanico were able to slip away south, and we will catch up to them a bit later. But for the next six or so years, Cabeza de Vaca and the other few survivors lived among the Capoques and the Hands, and came into contact with other native groups as well. The Capoques moved frequently with the seasons, sometimes staying on the island and sometimes moving to the mainland. It was in one of these moving times that Cabeza de Vaca came into contact with a group called the Charucos. The Charucos, it turned out, were at war with another tribe further inland and needed a neutral third party to help facilitate trade between the two groups, even though they were in the middle of a war. For the next two years or so, Cabeza de Vaca was given the task of being a sort of traveling merchant for the Charucos, going from place to place and tribe to tribe to ply his wares and contributing in his own small way to the vast trade network that ran the length and breadth of North America. Shells, pearls, and marine animal hearts would be exchanged for hides, flint, a type of red paint, hardwoods to make arrows, and even a type of glue. By his own admission, Cabeza de Vaca seemed to enjoy this line of work. He says, quote, This occupation suited me. I could travel where I wished and was not obliged to work and was not a slave. Wherever I went, the Indians treated me honorably and gave me food because they liked my commodities. They were glad to see me when I came and delighted to be brought what they wanted. I became well known. Those who did not know me personally knew me by reputation and sought my acquaintance. End quote. Finally, in 1532, Cabeza de Vaca and Lope de Oviedo, the guy that had discovered the Capoque village earlier, made their escape and headed south towards Spanish territory. Like I said earlier, Durantes, Castillo, and Estebanico had all already started on the journey south, and now it was Cabeza de Vaca and Lope de Oviedo's turn. These two men eventually met up with a group of natives called the Cavenes, who told them that there were three others further south. Cabeza de Vaca asked if there were any others and was told, no, just those three. The others had all died from hunger and cold. What's more, the ones who survived were treated very poorly by the natives they came into contact with. And then, just to prove how bad it was for the other Spaniards, the Cavenes then, quote, commenced slapping and batting Oviedo and did not spare me either. They would keep throwing clods at us too, and each of the days we waited there, they would stick their arrows to our hearts and say they had a mind to kill us the way they had finished our friends. My frightened companion Oviedo said he wanted to go back, end quote. Lope de Oviedo retraced his steps back toward the Isle of Mojado and was never heard from again. A few days later, the Cavenas took Cabeza de Vaca to the group that held the other Spaniards, and finally in the fall of 1532, after being separated for three years, Cabeza de Vaca was reunited with Durantes, Castillo, and Estebanico in the middle of a pecan grove. These four were the last surviving members of the Narvaez expedition and were determined to figure out a way to complete their journey. But it wouldn't be easy. Their lives were still ultimately under the control of the native tribes they were with. Durantes lived with a group called the Mariams, Castillo and Estebanico with a group called the Yugases, and Cabeza de Vaca, originally with the Cavenes, was taken in by Durantes' group. In the summer, both tribes would make their way south toward a well-known prickly pear grove near the Nueces River, which is itself near Corpus Christi Bay. The plan was for the four men to travel with their tribes to that grove, meet up, and then steal away either by themselves or with another tribe. But that plan wouldn't be for a few more months. In the meantime, they would have to content themselves with the day-to-day -day toil of the tribe. 
As the months passed, Cabeza de Vaca learned the Miriam language from Durantes, became one of the first Europeans to see live buffalo, and came to appreciate the natural beauty that lay around him. He also learned to eat spiders, ant eggs, worms, snakes, and other weird and gross things. Cabeza de Vaca reports that the Miriams were big fans of partying and apparently liked to spend their time dancing and drinking some sort of intoxicating drink. They weren't all fun and games, though. In addition to menial labor, he and Durantes were charged with keeping great smoky bonfires lit all night to help fight off the swarms of mosquitoes that descended like rain. If they fell asleep, they were beaten. September of 1534 came, and with it the realization of the Spaniards' plan to escape. Cabeza de Vaca, chafing under the harsh treatment he was receiving, told the others that he was going whether they came or not. After a few complications, the four Spaniards fled into the Texan wilderness and headed south. We are now at a point in our story where things start to take sort of a strange turn. You see, back on the island of Malhado, the Spanish were occasionally forced to perform healing ceremonies for the inhabitants of the island. Professor Resendez tells us that, quote, At the insistence of the capoques and the hands, Cabeza de Vaca and some of the others had made the sign of the cross, said a paternoster or an Ave Maria, and begged God to restore the health of their patients. The ceremonies had been simple and infrequent, but as the survivors ventured south to the great Tunal, prickly pear fields, they discovered that their fame as faith healers preceded them wherever they went. The natives kept bringing their sick to the castaways. End quote. Now that they were on the run and headed south, the four men apparently decided to give the people what they wanted. All four of them would see patients, perform the sign of the cross over them, maybe breathe on them a little bit, and remarkably, the sick would get better. With each healing, their fame grew. Not long into their flight from the prickly pear fields, Cabeza de Vaca tells us, quote, A crowd of Indians came to Castillo next morning, bringing five sick persons who had cramps. Each of the five offered his bow and arrows, and Castillo accepted them. At sunset, he blessed them and commended them to God our Lord. We all prayed the best we could for their health. We knew that only through him would these people help us, so we might emerge from this unhappy existence. And he bestowed health so bountifully that every patient got up the, fo the morning following as sound and strong as if he had never had an illness. This caused great admiration and moved us to further our gratitude to our Lord. End quote. Cabeza de Vaca also performed these miraculous feats himself. He tells us that he was begged to help some Solosas tribesmen, one of whom was on the brink of death. When he arrived, he was brought to the hut of the dying man, only to find that he had passed away already. Cabeza de Vaca still went in, confirmed the man was dead, prayed fervently for the man anyway, and breathed on him a few times. The man didn't respond, so Cabeza de Vaca turned to help the other injured tribesmen. At the end of the day, however, he learned that the dead man had actually miraculously gotten up, walked around, talked, and eaten with the other members of his tribe as if nothing had happened. Now, it is important to note that Cabeza de Vaca never uses the word miracle in his narrative to describe these healings. He continuously gives all of the credit to God in his stories, partially because his memoirs regarding his journeys were published during the heyday of the Spanish Inquisition. Claiming these healings to be miracles of his own doing would bring the Inquisitors to his door, and nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Later authors describing this scene would make a much bigger deal of claiming these to be miracles, but not Cabeza de Vaca. 
No matter what words he used later in his books, however, the natives at this time were awestruck by this power. Naturally, this skyrocketed the fame of the Spaniards, and they became intertribal celebrities as they continued their journey south. They would move from one nomadic band of natives for a time, then leave them and continue with another band, steadily making their way south, performing healings as they went. Through it all, the four castaways got up close and personal with the everyday life of numerous tribes living in southern Texas, and every way they went, all four were treated with reverence and respect. Word of their coming preceded them as their fame continued to grow, so much so that Cabeza de Vaca claims they were followed by great crowds of people who were quick to bring sick people to them. Now, scholars don't believe the natives they encountered thought the Spaniards were gods, and Cabeza de Vaca certainly doesn't try to portray them as such, thanks to the Spanish Inquisition that no one expects. But it is clear that there were at least a, f a tenuous belief among tribes that there was something supernatural going on with these European wanderers. Sometime in the spring or summer of 1535, our four friends and their ever-changing entourage reached and began to cross over the Sierra de Pamoranes mountain range and came across the San Fernando and Conchos rivers. Rio de las Palmas lay a mere 90 miles away to the south, with Santi Esteban del Puerto, the northernmost Spanish outpost in the New World, a scant 30 miles beyond that. The end of their 1,200-mile journey from Tampa Bay was within reach. All the blood, sweat, and death was behind them. Their own countrymen were just ahead. And then something completely different happened. For some reason, the four men turned west and headed deeper into the interior of the continent, away from Spanish territory. On some level, maybe they began to believe that they would be able to continue in this semi-lavish lifestyle of fame and reverence. Maybe they believed that God would continue to protect them. Maybe they got the itch to explore again, or maybe they were just simply lost. And Maybe also they saw the goods that, were, that wandering bands of native traders were bringing around and wanted to get some for themselves. We don't know for certain exactly why they turned away from Panuco, just that they did, and headed up through the mountains back inland. By this point, the four men were being led by hundreds of natives and being passed off from group to group like a prized possession. Progress was good and they made good time, and they also continued their healing practices, praying over the sick, blowing on them, and even performing rudimentary surgeries to extract arrowheads. All of this continued to please their native hosts, and their fame continued to spread. At one point, the reverence the natives had for the foursome dictated that no one was allowed to drink water unless the Spanish gave it their okay. Choice food was offered to the Spaniards first. And it got to a point where the natives would negotiate with each other as to where and when these healers would come through their particular place. One day, the Europeans made it known to their guides that they wanted to go west. The natives of the area refused to take them, since that way was filled with unfriendly people. The Europeans expressed their displeasure with this, and Cabeza de Vaca, in what reads like a great deal of theatricality, even spent the night away from the group to show his displeasure. The natives went looking for him, found him, and stayed awake all night telling the Spanish that they were terrified of them and only wanted to try to please them. Cabeza de Vaca tells what happens next. Quote, we still feigned displeasure in order to keep the upper hand. A singular circumstance strengthened that hand mightily. That very day, many of the Indians had fallen ill, and the next day, eight men died. All over that area, wherever this became known, the natives panicked, and they seemed to think that they would die at the sight of us. They supplicated us to kill no more of them in our wrath, for they believed we caused their death 
by merely willing it, end quote. In truth, these deaths were distressing even to the Spanish, who prayed for the natives to heal their sickness, which happened. For the next two weeks, Cabeza de Vaca reports that it was complete silence in the camp. No one talked, no one laughed, and the one poor little child who cried was taken away and was slashed from head to foot with sharp rat teeth as punishment for crying in front of the Europeans. Horrified, Cabeza de Vaca put a stop to that. The natives of that area were clearly terrified of these demigod-like healers who could kill without a word. The Spaniards kept going. They passed through the present-day states of Coahuila and Chihuahua before coming in the summer of 1535 to the juncture of the Rio Conchos and the Rio Grande River and the small cluster of settlements known as La Junta de los Rios located there. In late 1535 or early 1536, they came to the area known as the Land of Maize in the foothills of the Sierra Madre Occidental mountain range. As they again began to wander south on the western side of the mountains, they discovered permanent settlements here in keeping with the more agricultural setting required to grow and export large quantities of maize. They continued with their healings, but now the fruits of their labor started to become more valuable to Spanish desires. There were beads and corals from the Pacific Ocean, hundreds of deer hearts at a place they named Corazones, trinkets of turquoise, and emeralds in the shapes of arrowheads. The peoples of this region continued to flock to the healers, and we are even told that some mothers brought their newborns to have the healers bless the children. Being good men of God, they evangelized where they were able, and were beginning to dream of bringing these natives into the Spanish fold, not as slaves or conquered enemies, but as friends and equals in the sight of God and men. Finally, in the winter of 1535, the Spaniards spotted a man who had a Spanish-made buckle and a horseshoe nail on a necklace around his neck. Excited, the men continued south again, all the while promising that they would look after their native friends when they made contact with their Spanish brethren. Now, by this point in late 1535 and 1536, Spanish influence had grown to encompass most of what would become Mexico. Spanish raiding parties were regularly going into the surrounding regions to capture natives to be used as slaves. It was one of these raiding parties that Cabeza de Vaca, Estebanico, and 11 of their native friends met in April 1536. As Cabeza de Vaca walked up to them, the slavers were in shock, especially when he spoke clear and fluent Spanish to them. Cabeza de Vaca says that all the horsemen could do was stare dumbfounded at him. Finally, Cabeza de Vaca asked the raiders to bring him to their captain, and a few days later, they were all joined by Durantes, Castillo, and about 600 natives. Almost nine years after setting off from Spain, the last survivors of the Narvaez expedition walked back into Spanish territory, and on July 23, 1536, they arrived in Mexico. Now, in the course of this two-part series, we have seen the utter dependence that the four survivors had of their native guides. The four men saw the humanity of the various peoples they came across, and witnessed the many similarities between themselves and these, to them, strange peoples. In so doing, Cabeza de Vaca, at least, seems to have come to care for them, at least enough to try to treat them as almost equals. After his return to the familiar settings of Spanish colonial activity, he pushed for more humane treatment of the natives as the Spanish colonies spread. Now, sadly, his arguments fell on deaf ears. There seemed to be too much money involved in colonies and conquests for him to be listened to. Years after returning from his epic journey across North America, he would hold some territory in what is now Paraguay, 
Uruguay, and Argentina. He gave the natives gifts instead of the whip, and spoke kindly to them instead of cursing them. He ordered his men to, you know, pay for what they took from the natives, and in general, to treat them civilly and with respect. His men didn't see things that way, seized Governor Cabeza de Vaca, and sent him back to Spain in 1544. It seemed conquest was more important than decency. Cabeza de Vaca spent the last years of his life in Spain, writing his memories and doing what little he could to help fight for native rights. He died in Seville in 1560. Unfortunately, the lessons and convictions that Cabeza de Vaca realized didn't seem to take with the other three survivors. Both captains Dorantes and Castillo, married wealthy widows, were given lands and titles and were entrusted with the care of the natives who lived there. They just had to make sure that the natives learned about God as they did their work. Eventually, both their households would become respectable, and they would both become esteemed leaders in the Spanish colonial system, a system built by native slave labor. Estebanico fared far worse. Of the four, he was the only one to return to the frontiers of North America. In 1538, he left Mexico City at the head of a reconnaissance party heading back toward the land of maize. He was recognized by the natives in the region and was given gifts of turquoise and women, which naturally fed his confidence. When the group reached what is now Sonora, Estebanico ventured on ahead and met a group of natives by himself. He explained to the natives that he was leading a group of Spaniards who would teach the natives about divine things. We are told that he then asked for more turquoise and women. The natives deliberated for a few days on his news and his requests slash demands, and then killed him. In spite of these sad and gruesome ends, the journey of these four castaways is still nothing short of extraordinary. They survived the elements, hurricanes, hostile natives, hunger, cold, and drowning in their long, long walk from Tampa Bay, Florida, to Mexico City. From the spot where they fled from the Mariams, it is estimated they walked on foot almost 2,400 miles before reaching Mexico City. They made contact with numerous native tribes, must have learned many tribal languages, and witnessed firsthand the cultural customs and practices of the people of North America that would otherwise be lost forever in, in the wake of the advancing waves of Spanish colonialism. As the Texas State Historical Association's website puts it, quote, Cabeza de Vaca's unparalleled adventures in Texas during which he was a merchant, doctor, ethnologist, historian, and observer of plants and animals, have made many Texans indebted to him for the first written descriptions of their land and its people. End quote. And that's where we'll end this episode and this series. I want to give a special shout out to Professor Andres Resendez's book, A Land So Strange, uh, as it was one of the um, first windows into this incredible story that I came across back in grad school. And it's really awesome. These two podcasts don't do his work justice, and I highly recommend that you pick up that book and uh, give it a read uh, to get even crazier insight into this journey. If you have any questions, concerns, comments, suggestions, cries of outrage, or accusations of heresy that the Spanish Inquisition would be interested in, you can get in touch with me by emailing historyonthesite at gmail.com through Facebook and Instagram by searching History on the Side, or by looking on the still new car smelling website at www.historyontheside.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>